Well, good morning, church family, and uh, I want to encourage you to grab your Bibles and open up to Romans chapter 8. And as I say those words, church family, I'm reminded that it's more than likely you are sitting at home with your family. Not all of you, but some of you are at home with your family right now. And I just want you to think about, if, if you're part of our church family, by the way, just, I want you to think about just that concept, the idea of family itself. I want you to think about some of what that means, what it's intended by God to mean for you and for me, what we're supposed to experience and enjoy in the midst of family relationships. Families are supposed to be a a place where you find a source of comfort, where you find a place of acceptance and love, and, and in many ways where you find a place of safety and security. To know and to be known, to enjoy intimacy in those relationships and the blessing that all of that affords. And I'm aware that that's not been everybody's experience in this life and on this earth. Some of you have had terrible family experiences or maybe you're going through difficult family experiences even right now. But I want you to hear this this morning from God's Word that God is wanting to encourage our hearts. He wants to encourage our hearts with a reminder of what it means to be in His family, of how good it is to be in His family, to be His children, to have Him as our Father. To be a part of God's family, you see, is, is to know and enjoy a comfort that far exceeds anything we could experience in this world and even in our earthly families. To be in God's family is to know and experience an acceptance and a love and a safety, anything, anything that this world has to offer. And the little bits we we might get to experience in our our own physical family units, those things that we get to taste and enjoy, they're a glimpse of what we experience in in fullness in being a part of God's family. Paul writes in Romans chapter 8 about the Spirit of God and what the Spirit of God is doing. And I want to back up to verse 12, but we're going to spend our time really looking this morning at verses 14 through 16. Let me read from verse 12. So then, brothers, again, family language, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God. The Holy Spirit works in the life of the believer to remind and to reinforce that God is indeed our Father, that we are His children, His sons in particular. And that's what Paul writes about here and what the Spirit of God wants to minister to our hearts. And I want to show you three different things that the Spirit of God is is working in our hearts. You see, if I'm in God's family, then God's Spirit first produces an unmistakable affinity. 
an uncanny resemblance to God. He says in verse 14, for all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. Now, this statement, sons of God, is incredibly important to understand. It actually pulls us all the way back into the soil of the Old Testament, and it's helpful to be reminded, listen, that when when Paul, especially, and the other New Testament authors are writing, they're constantly thinking back to their Old Testament roots. They're using language and themes and ideas that pull you back into the the grand storyline of the Bible. And so when Paul says this term, sons of God, it's just, it's so helpful to know that he is thinking deeply about so much of what the Old Testament Scriptures say when they communicate the same idea of sons of God. Now, believers are united to Christ. And we're not merely, as a result, creatures owned by the Creator. We're not merely servants of the King, and we're certainly not criminals who now stand before a judge. Instead, when we approach the Creator, the Sustainer, and the Judge of the cosmos, we do so, according to the Word of God, approaching Him as sons, sons of the Heavenly Father. And as I was just mentioning, this idea of sons of God goes all the way back to the very beginning, actually, of the Bible itself. When God created humanity, we're reminded that He created them in His image and likeness. In Genesis 1.26, we're told that Adam and Eve, they're created in the image and likeness of God. And that very much so speaks to this idea of sonship. In fact, here's what the author of Genesis, Moses, picks up on that Adam had born a son, and that son bore his own, listen to this language, image and likeness. Genesis 5, verse 3. I'll put it on your screen for you there. Just notice that the the similarity in language is intended to pull you back to the very beginning, and it's supposed to show you, listen, Adam was created as a son of God. He's created in the image and likeness of God, and so too Adam has children who are in his own image and likeness. In fact, Luke 3.38, also up on the screen, listen to what the author of this gospel Luke does. He picks up on this connection, and he's talking about it in this genealogy. He's tracing the genealogy of Jesus, and he says, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, and listen to this language, the son of God. But you see, while Adam was created in God's own image as a son of God, The fall into sin, when when Adam and Eve, they took the bite of that fruit in the garden, they plunged humanity into sin, and they marred that image of God. It's still there, it's still present, but it is tainted, it's distorted, it's broken in many ways. Adam surrendered in that moment his kingdom to Satan, to sin, and to death. And in so doing, he placed a great obstacle between God and man, an obstacle between that relationship that humanity was intended to know and experience with God, an obstacle to intimacy, a family intimacy with God. As a result, all of humanity, though they are children of God, they're like estranged children, children who are kicked out of the home, and actually children who want nothing to do with their father, They're rebellious through and through. 
And the only thing that overcomes our rebellion as human beings is Christ's work on our behalf. He, in the cross and resurrection, saves us from our rebellion, and He restores us back into that intimate family relationship with God, our Father. He allows us to reconnect, so to speak, to enjoy all that it means to be a part of God's family. And the storyline of Scripture traces the plan of God to mend His broken family, to create a new and restored family. And it does so in family language. All throughout the Old Testament, we see it unfold, especially in the microcosm of the nation of Israel and Israel's relationship to God. You see, Israel in the Old Testament is referred to as God's son. In fact, notice Exodus 4, verse 23. I'll put it there so you can take a good look at it. And here's what it says, and I say to you, let my son, this is when the nation of Israel is trapped, they're in exile, so to speak, in Egypt, and here is the message that God sends through Moses to Pharaoh, let my son go that he may serve me. He goes on to say, if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son." And the imagery there is supposed to connect you back to this idea of Adam. It's supposed to connect you back to this family kind of relationship. And you're supposed to see and hear in this, listen, as you hear these words, Israel is kind of like Adam. They have this unique relationship to God. But we know this as we read through the Old Testament. Israel, as God's son, he rebels against God, just like Adam rebels against God. He fails to obey God's law, the Father's law, just like Adam heard the law of God in the garden and refused to obey and submit. So to Israel, here's the law of God in the wilderness from Mount Sinai, and instantly they turn away and break the law, turning to idols. And in failing to obey God's law, listen, both of them had the promise of life given to them. If you obey, you will live. In fact, Israel was promised that they would live in the land if they only obeyed the law of God. And as a result of of their repeated rebelliousness, the nation of Israel, God expels His rebellious son from the land. Listen, just as He expelled His first son, Adam, from the land, from the Garden of Eden. And and when all seemed lost in, in the nation of Israel's history, God chose to remind His people of what He would do. In fact, God, in the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 7, verse 14, he comes along King David, and again, we'll put it up on the screen for you. He comes along King David, and he makes a promise that one of his own descendants, one of his own sons, David's sons, would rule on his throne. And listen to what, listen to what God says to David. He says, I will be his father, and he shall be my son. Striking language. Again, 
The Spirit of God intending you to see the flow of the storyline of Scripture. Here we have Adam, the rebellious son who cannot keep the law of God. Here we have Israel, the rebellious son who refuses to keep the law of God. When will there be a son to represent humanity who will faithfully keep the law of God and reclaim what has been lost through rebellious humanity? Who is this son? Who would the faithful son be? Let me take you back to the beginning of the book of Romans for a minute. Go right back, flip there to Romans chapter 1, and let me remind you about the very first words written by the Apostle Paul in this letter to the Romans. Here's what he says. Paul, a servant, listen to this, of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Listen to this language. Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be, listen to this, the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Christ Jesus. Who would the son be? Who would the faithful son be? It would be none other than Jesus Christ. He would be the one who could do what Adam could not do. He would be the one who would do what Israel could not do. He was the one that was, it was declared over him at his baptism, God the Father declaring, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The son who would keep the law fully, who would never turn his back on the Father, who would obey right to the very end. He is the true and faithful Son of God. He is the true and better Adam. He is the true and better Israel. He is the one and only natural-born Son. He was faithful to obey God's law and live, but I want you to notice this. Paul wants us to take note of this. Listen, what Paul has done in Romans 5, chapter 5 through 6, is he has shown us that in Christ, in Christ... We get all of the benefits of being sons of God through the one true Son of God. We are supernaturally united to the Son of God, and because we're united to Him, listen, whatever is said of Him is said of us. If He is God's sons and we are in Him, we too are viewed by God as His sons. And we know that we're sons. Look at what Paul says here. See, this is part of the point of what the Spirit of God wants to do in our hearts. How do I know I'm part of God's family? How can I be secure in the fact that I am truly in God's family? Listen to what he says there in verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God, those are sons of God. What does he mean by led by the Spirit? That's the question. Here's, here's what he doesn't mean. He's not talking about the, the kind of mystical or supernatural guidance of the Spirit. You know, he's not talking about trying to seek God's will and have the Spirit move you into a certain sphere of life or a certain direction in your life. He's not talking about where you should live or who you should marry or what you should eat for breakfast. He's not going there. That's not what he's talking about. 
The context of this verse, verse 14, makes it clear that to be led by the Spirit of God is to live by the Spirit of God. In other words, verse 13 informs us of what it means to be led by the Spirit of God. Here's what it says. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Listen, those who are led by the Spirit of God are those who are putting to death the deeds of the flesh. He's talking about practical holiness in our lives. That's what it means. The Spirit of God leads us away from sin and toward Christ-likeness. And if that's taking place in our life, if we see the evidences of holiness, of a a longing in our hearts for holiness, of a hunger and thirst for righteousness, if we see the evidence, listen, of practical sanctification, of being molded and shaped daily, weekly, yearly, as a progressive pattern of our life into the image of our Savior Jesus Christ, we know, listen, we know that that is the Spirit of God's work in our lives and that we are being led by the Spirit and as a result, we're reminded that we are indeed children of God. That's the flow of thought. You see the evidence, and you know, I, can't, I couldn't have done this on my own. I couldn't have, I couldn't have radically changed my life. Uh, my desires couldn't have shifted like this on their own. This is only the result of the Spirit of God in my life. He is leading me to be more like Jesus Christ. He's leading me to know the Word of God. He's leading me to obey the Word of God and to be conformed to the Word of God. Someone recently um, took a look at me standing beside my daughter and kind of did a double take back and forth and said, wow, she looks so much like you. It's, it's true. It's not very difficult to see that we're related, um, especially when we're standing side by side and I um, shave my beard. But I also get this quite often. You know, the older I get, the more I get told I look like my father. And it's true. It's funny how that works. It's, it's funny how aging, interestingly, and over time, we start to look more like those we're related to, especially our parents. But, but what's also interesting, I notice this in my life, the older I get, the more I see I act and behave like my parents. I see how their influence has rubbed off on my life, and, and the closer I've been to them, the more and more they seem to rub off on me. The resemblance, the affinity, it's obvious, it's unmistakable. And here's the question that I would pose to you today. If you are in Christ, if you are a child of God, if He is your Heavenly Father, here's the question, how much do you look like your Father? Is there an unmistakable affinity? Is there an uncanny resemblance? Are you truly a chip off the old block? Is it obvious? Would would people look at you and know there's something different about you? You look exactly like this God you keep telling me about. Obviously not perfectly. But let me ask you this other question. The longer you walk with God, the more you've been walking with God, is it true of your life that you are actually looking more like your father? Listen, the more mature you are, the longer of time you've been a Christian, this should be fundamentally true. The more closely you should resemble Jesus Christ, the more closely you should look holy like your father in heaven is holy. It should be evidence. And by God's grace... 
and the working of His Spirit. Through our surrender to the Spirit of God and to the Word of God, we become more like Him. But you see, it's evident because ultimately it's the byproduct of we, what we get to enjoy. You see, if I'm in God's family, God's Spirit, secondly, grants unrestricted access. Our, our affinity, our resemblance to the Father is in many ways a result of the access granted to us. The fact that we can actually get close to the Father and see what He looks like and draw near to Him. One of the greatest benefits of being in a family is the unprecedented access you get to enjoy in those relationships. You know this in your your personal family relationships. On on our front door, if you come to our house, on our front door we have a, a, a lock that has a keypad on it. And to get into the house, you need to know the access code. You probably have a key. Maybe you've got an access code like we do, but you need an, an access code to get into the house. But, but, and, and by the way, everybody in my family has an access code to get into the house. And once you punch in that access code, you get to walk in, and metaphorically speaking, listen, you get to enjoy all of the rights and privileges and blessings and benefits of being a part of that family. It's not open to just everyone and anyone. It's only those who are in the family. They get to enjoy all that it means to be a part of this family. And here's what it means. If you are in Christ today, you have been given the access code to walk directly into the house of God and directly up to God as your Father and enjoy all the rights, privileges, benefits, and blessings of being in God's family. In Christ, listen, this is the best part. There's no restricted access to the Father. He's not secluded somewhere that you only, get, you only get to see him or talk to him, you know, once a year or every once in a while. Unrestricted access. He's removed the barrier of sin that stood between you and him, that prevented you from enjoying any kind of access to him. It's gone. It's eradicated. It's torn down. And now you get to march straight into the presence of your father. And now in Christ, listen, and through His Spirit, we enjoy two things related to this unrestricted access. Two things we get to enjoy. The first one is this. We have full immunity. We have full immunity as God's children. Listen to what he says here in verse 15. He says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. This is a picture of the effect of the law. He's, he's referring now back to the, 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 the old covenant context, pre-Christ context, where people were, were under the law. The law revealed man's sin and, and separation from God, so much so that in the Old Testament, men actually trembled at the thought of being anywhere near the presence of God. If you read through Exodus 19, you get a glimpse of this as the people of God surround the mountain, and, and God shakes the mountain, and the, and, and the people of God are terrified by the very presence of God, and they, they want Moses to go. Only you, Moses, you go into the presence of God on behalf of us. We're too afraid. They were awed and frightened at the very prospect of approaching God under the law in the Old Testament, and rightly so. 
It's a terrifying reality to step as a sinful human being into the presence of a holy God. Think Isaiah and Isaiah chapter 6, who is exposed to the glory of God in the house of God, and he falls to his face, and he says, Woe is me, I'm ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. Yet this is the privilege of every single person who is united to Christ. We get to march directly into the presence of God with full immunity, knowing we have nothing to fear. We approach God, the same God of Exodus 19, and we do so as Paul writes in Ephesians 3.12, listen, with boldness and confident access through Him. So when God saved you, he paid your certificate of debt. He took the penalty of your condemnation. Everything you were rightly fearful of, that moment of death where you would face the very judgment and wrath of God, that was all taken upon Jesus Christ on the cross. All of it, so much so that there's nothing left to be poured out, to be meted out upon you. The very thing that kept you from God has been removed. He conquered your greatest enemies, sin and death and Satan. Listen to what Hebrews 2, verse 14 and 15 says. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise, speaking of Jesus, partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He takes that that slavery to sin and death and and the fear associated with having to stand before a holy God in our sinful condition, and he strips it away, and he gives us unrestricted access, complete freedom in the presence of God. The law no longer stands over us, constantly condemning us. We have been given full immunity in Christ. Now, I'm going to have a moment of, of honesty and transparency here. Um, I, I am a massive Survivor fan, the show Survivor. Don't judge me. I'm a massive fan of the show Survivor. I've always enjoyed it. I think it's fascinating. And one of the things you know, if you're a Survivor fan like me, um, if you watch the show, one of the things you know is that people are getting voted off this island. It's the last man standing idea. And in order to not get voted off, you have to win competitions or you have to find Um, something that can save you, something that they call an immunity idol. And if you find this immunity idol or you win this immunity idol, when you're standing, so to speak, in the, you know, before the judgment seat, ready to be voted off, you can take out this immunity idol and it can be placed around your neck, it can be draped over you so that you cannot be voted off, you're completely safe and you're completely secure. It's an ironic illustration of how many people think they're going to approach God. There are many people today who are trusting in the immunity idol of good works. They think that they're going to stand before God on their own merits and their own righteousness and that that will be good enough to save them. They're holding fast, believing they're secure in their good works. Many people think they're going to stand before God um, with the immunity idol of a good life. I've lived a good life. I haven't done a lot of things wrong. I've been helpful to people. 
I haven't hurt a lot of people. And they're going to they're gonna try and put on their immunity idol of a good life and hope that that's the thing that will save them in the end, that will keep them secure. There are many people who are holding on to the, the immunity idol of a good reputation or good morals or even a good belief system or even a, a good religious system that they think is going to be what gets them access to God in the end. But if you've ever watched the show Survivor, you know this, that every once in a while, somebody gets duped into thinking they've found an immunity idol. One of the other contestants fabricates something. They create an idol. They hide it. And somebody finds it thinking they've found the real thing. And they stand at the end, when, when they're, they're, they're all getting ready to vote somebody out, they stand there feeling confident, a big smile on their face. And then when they have the opportunity to play the immunity idol, they pull it out, they walk up, and they look at the host, Jeff Probst, in the face, the judge in this case, thinking they're safe only to hear this is a false or a fake immunity idol. It's no good. It's worthless. Go sit back down. And many people are going to stand before God on that final day. And they're going to bring their fake immunity idols. They're going to bring their immunity idols up to God and say, hey, I'm, I'm safe, right? I'm secure. Only to hear the words, depart from me, you who work lawlessness. I never knew you. There'll be no good in the end. They will provide no safety. They will provide no security. And without Christ, you will stand naked and exposed in all of your sinfulness, in all of your shame and guilt, seeing how worthy you are, not of salvation, but of condemnation. You'll have nothing to shield you from God's wrath. But you see, in Christ, there is free and full immunity. He is not some idol made by human hands that you hope will protect you in the end. He is the true and living God who alone can save. And by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, God drapes your sin upon his shoulders on the cross. And then God drapes his righteousness upon your shoulders so that if you're in Christ, you stand before God with the immunity of the blood of Jesus Christ. All fear stripped away. As God's family, we enjoy that privilege and that blessing, and it's more than that. Not only do we enjoy full immunity, look at this secondly, we have full intimacy. We have been given full intimacy. He goes on to say in verse 15, notice this, that you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Such a, a precious verse. We have received the spirit of adoption. We cry out, Abba, Father. You see, we're not slaves under the curse of the law, but sons under the blessings of Christ. You see, in Christ, he took all the curses of the law. For cursed is he, is anyone who hangs upon a tree. And we receive all the blessings of Jesus Christ for all the promises of God. Find their yes and amen in him. We have the blessings of Christ, Ephesians 1, heaped upon us. They're all ours in Jesus Christ. None of the curses, all of the blessings. 
And the great blessing that we have been given, that maybe the greatest of all is the privilege of intimacy with the Father. And what this is speaking directly to is this idea of access to God in prayer in particular, that here and now we can march into the throne room of grace. We can call out to our Father. We can cry out to Him in prayer. And our access to God reveals this depth of intimacy that's captured here by this, by this calling out, this phrase here, Abba, Father. It's almost like a little child crying out, Dad. And it echoes intentionally. It echoes. Paul is reaching back into Mark chapter 14, verse 36. You know, you know the context, don't you? Where Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's looking toward the cross, and in the most desperate moment of his life, he cries out to God, and he cries out with these words, Abba, Father. And the point that Paul is making is that just like Jesus, we can cry out to God in the same way. By the way, when Jesus spoke this way about God being his father, it was viewed as being blasphemous by all of his religious critics. They couldn't believe he dared to claim this kind of intimacy. And what Paul is saying is this, if you're in Christ Jesus, you have the exact intimacy as Jesus Christ. The second member member of the Trinity And we can too, like Jesus, even in our desperate moments, with childlike assurance, cry out to God with with the knowledge of our acceptance, the security of our acceptance. We can cry out in our darkest moments of confusion, of pain, and of suffering. And by the way, if we can cry out in our most desperate moments, we can cry out anytime. See, why? Why can we do this? Because, he says, we have received the spirit of adoption. Such a precious word. God makes certain, listen, his children know that they are his. And the term adoption here is it's filled with ideas of love and grace and compassion and intimacy. We know, we know what this means. It's the, 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 the action by which a husband and a wife decide to take a, a little boy or a little girl who's not their physical offspring, but they take them into their family as their own, and they legally bring them into their family. And in the Greco-Roman world, listen, that when you adopted a child into your family, they too embraced all of the rights and privileges of a natural-born child in the home. And that's what's true of us in Christ. And I want to tell you what this means, just a few ways. Here's some things that this this kind of points us to and reminds us. That means that if we're adopted, listen, it means that we all come the same way. It It means there's only one option. We must all be adopted into God's family. I mentioned that there's only one natural born son, and that's Jesus Christ. Every other son of God, and by that I mean sons and daughters, blanket term, but you have to see the connection of son to Jesus here. No one is naturally born into God's family. You are adopted, listen, through a supernatural birth produced by the Spirit of God. You are brought into the family of God and made a child of God by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Here's what it means as well. It means that there's no favorite children in God's family. We all come the same way, and God views us all the same way. We all have the same identity. We are in Christ Jesus. 
And while adopted kids in an earthly context may feel like second-class family members, that's never true in God's family. There's no second-class status. You have the same amount of access and intimacy as every other follower of Jesus Christ. It means this next, that you are chosen. I want you to think about this. You see, adopted children don't choose their parents. God graciously and lovingly seeks out unworthy men and women, boys and girls, and on his own initiative, he, he sets his love upon them, and he makes them his children. And it means this as well, as I've already mentioned, it means we get to come with boldness. It means we get to come with reverence, but we come with also expectation. And here's the question I have for you as it relates to this. If you've been given all this access to pass directly into the presence of God, are you using it? You've been given an all-access pass, backstage pass. Here's the question. Are you sitting at home, or are you actually backstage in the presence of God, enjoying intimate fellowship with Him in prayer? It's astounding to me, even in my own life, how I can neglect the beautiful privilege of prayer and developing and cultivating this intimacy with God. I was struck this week, I read this quote by Charles Spurgeon. He said, I would rather produce one man of prayer than ten preachers of the gospel. You see, it's about intimacy. That's the Christian life. It's about intimacy with God, drawing near to Him, not just in position. We're all there positionally. We all have that access. But practically, are we cultivating that intimacy through daily moments of dependence upon God in prayer? And not just going to God to get things from Him, but going to God to get more of God, to just simply be with Him, to climb up on His lap and sit in His presence and talk to Him like a child talks to his father. This is what God wants of his children. And this is what God's inviting you to. So so listen, put down all of those things that are keeping you busy. Put your phone down. Turn off your television. Get rid of all of the distractions. Set your alarm 15 minutes earlier and get into the presence of God. Become a child of God who depends deeply upon God and who loves to be in the presence of God. Oh, what God might do in your life and in the life of our church family if we would become a people of prayer, a people who knew so intimately the presence of God and therefore saw so clearly the power of God. Lastly and quickly, if I'm in God's family, God's Spirit produces, listen, or God's Spirit, excuse me, speaks unmatched assurance. He speaks unmatched assurance to our hearts. Look at this last verse, verse 16. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. What greater assurance can we hope for than to have the Spirit of God Himself bearing witness with our own spirit speaking to the depths of our soul that we are reminding us, reassuring us, comforting us with the reality. Listen, whatever you're going through, whatever you're facing, no matter your struggles, you are my beloved child. See, what does this mean that the Spirit testifies to ours or bears witness to ours? What exactly does that mean? There's, there's some debate about this. Listen, it's possible that this, this Spirit-bearing witness is something that's objective. In other words, 
It kind of links us back to our first point, that through the evidence of sanctification in our lives, through the fruit of the Spirit, the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, the goodness, the faithfulness, the gentleness, the self-control that is birthed in us and growing in us by the power of the Spirit of God, through those clear evidences, the Spirit is assuring our heart, just telling us, see, you're a child, you're a child. And that's very possible, and I think that's absolutely true, but I also think that Paul made that clear already in verse 14. You see, I think this point actually points more towards an experiential reality that is true at times in the life of the believer, in the true child of God. And, and don't let that word experience scare you. I know some of you are already like, Phew, you just kind of, you know, it's a little bit of a jolt to the system. Because I, I get it. I, I get it. I know experiences are not primary. The Word of God is primary. I know experiences make a bad leader. I know that experiences can be fabricated and can be counterfeit. I get all of that, and I, I appreciate all of that, and we need those warnings, and we need those guardrails. Listen, but because that is true, because all those things may be true, does not invalidate the reality that true experience in the Christian life should be present. Commentator Douglas Moo writes this in his commentary. Paul refers to the human spirit here, our spirit, the spirit of God, because he wants to stress that the witness of the spirit, Holy Spirit himself, is witnessing about our adoption as sons, and it affects the deepest and innermost part of our beings. It is because of this that we cry so sincerely and spontaneously, Abba, Father, Paul involves our own spirit in the very process of testifying to us that we are children of God. You see, there's a very real experiential deal in the Christian life. There's a very real experiential reality in the Christian life. It's not just cold and clinical. We're not just kind of ticking the box and following the rules. We actually enjoy true intimacy with God, and the Spirit of God that lives in us bears witness to our spirit in our moments of frustration, in our moments of pain and sorrow, in our moments, listen, even of joy and drawing near to God through His Word. The Spirit of God delights our soul in the very presence of God, reminding us that we are children of God, that we have been blessed in Christ Jesus, that we are saved from our sin, that we're united to God the Father through Jesus Christ, that His Spirit dwells within us. We are inseparably united to God, both here and now and for all eternity. You see, Christian, that's where the security is bolstered and strengthened. As we see the Spirit of God working in all these ways, making us look more and more like the Father, as we see the Spirit of God giving us that unrestricted access, helping us draw near, the Spirit of God testifies to the very depths of our soul that we are indeed God's children. Let the Spirit of God produce this unmistakable affinity Let the Spirit of God grant this unrestricted access and let you grab a hold of that. And let the Spirit of God speak His unmatched assurance to your heart and to your soul. If you are not in God's family, the Spirit of God can change that today. He can produce in you new life and a new love for God. You can become a child of God, a son of God today by embracing the true son of God, Jesus Christ. 
by turning from your sin, by repenting and placing your faith in him, being united to him and enjoying all the privileges and benefits of blessings that the son Jesus Christ himself enjoys. If you're in God's family, may you see and sense the comfort and acceptance and the security that comes from knowing the love of God that's been shed abroad in your hearts by the very presence of the Spirit of God. May we as God's children live to proclaim the greatness of our God, our Heavenly Father. May we live to pour out our praise to Him and to Him alone. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. Father, we thank you that you not only have sent your Son to die on the cross, we thank you, Spirit of God, that you have applied the work of the Son to us that you have brought us to newness of life. The Spirit of God, you are actually alive in us. You live in us. And God, as Paul has pointed us to your work, Holy Spirit, and how you assure us that we are children of God, how you invite us and compel us to call out to you as Abba, Father, Spirit, as you stir our hearts to the very depths of our soul, reminding us that we are your children, we pray that we would find so much hope, so much joy, so much security in being your children. May we know the security that Jesus Christ himself knows. May we know the intimacy that Jesus Christ knows. May we know all of those privileges and blessings in increasing ways. May we know what it means to be transformed day by day by the power of your spirit for the glory and honor and greatness of your name. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.